This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my time to the show, Monday, Thursday, 10 till 1. It's Wednesday, so it must be PMQ's Unpacked. Tim Shipman will be here as we pause the action from the House of Commons to explain what is going on between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel, our brand new Wednesday columnist panel. It's Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton. Alice, let's, let's kick off with your column today, talking about how, because obviously there's lots of reflections on the past 12 months and some of the difficulties that people have faced, but you've written about how some people have done quite well in the past 12 months. Well, yeah, what I found fascinating is that I've spent the last 12 months talking to all the people who've had a terrible time, so the people in care homes, um, the people who's had family who've died, uh, you know, students, GCS. A-level students um, and everyone who's really suffered and people who've had cancer and, you know, my mother died and my father they were going through exams. But actually, when you look at research, what was fascinating to me is there is a group who have actually really enjoyed lockdown and they showed that in three pieces of research that came out this week on happiness, that all of them pointed to the fact that about a quarter to a fifth of people really enjoyed lockdown more than they enjoyed the year before. And that's what I find fascinating is why they enjoyed it and how they enjoyed it and what the reasons were behind that. And part of it is that they really disliked their life before. And part of it is that they like working less, commuting less, all the things that we thought about. But really, I wanted to write a column about how we could take some of that and try and change so that at least something good comes out of the last year. In your column last weekend in the, in the Times magazine, you, were, you wrote about reasons to be cheerful as well. I did, and Alice has, Alice, Alice has beaten me to it with this column because my, my column this Saturday, I've written something fairly similar without, <laughs> without, without all her erudition, of course, and the research, just basically uh, about me, which is what uh, I make no apology for. That's what the column's about. <laughs> just saying that, you know, two days before it started to, when the column's published, it'll be two days before the first restrictions start to ease. And um, is, it, is it wrong to already start feeling nostalgic for 
lockdown. Uh, I mean, I was particularly writing about having the kids around, which I've enjoyed, which I've, they've been around much more than they otherwise uh, would have been. I'm not sure whether they would agree with me, but I've I've liked that. Uh, and just the kind of whole whole family wholesome activities, which probably uh, were in decline uh, in our family. Uh, we, you know, watching the telly together, cooking together, eating together. Uh, I mean, we try to do that anyway, but we've done we've certainly done more of that, and I will I will miss that. I'm not sure I'm in the the one fifth of people who are actually happier, uh, and it wasn't that I disliked my life before, but there are certain aspects to it which I've enjoyed. And not having to socialise is quite a good one. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> much, much as I much as I obviously miss the two of you, uh, I know it's the others. It's the others. I can appreciate that. It's the, it's the, it's the rest of our times. Uh, it's the rest of our times. And Alice, you, you dress this in your colour. In no way, you know. Clearly, lots of people have had a terrible time, but there is a sort of weird division, isn't there, of, of people, you know, who've had a really tough time, and those of us who, who have been lucky enough, you've been able to keep on working. You can do it from home. Uh, you know, your family is safe and well. You've still had money coming mm. in. You've been able to slightly reflect on the, you know, in fact, last night, in the absence of anything else better to do, all, you know, the three of us all took the dog for a walk, you know, just as it was getting a bit dark. It's been really lovely. Uh, we had a good yeah. old chat about the. Yeah. We had never done that previously, even though. I know, think the teenagers are great, actually. I think that's the thing that everyone's discovered is they really like having teenagers at home, that teenagers sort of wander around. They're actually very chilled. Most of them have been extremely, um, I think, accommodating about the whole of the last mm. year. And they've been great, haven't they? I mean, that's weird that I thought having four teenagers in the house was going to kill me. But in fact, what happened is that they were the ones that kept everything going and were really quite entertaining because yeah. they're naturally laid back, aren't they, most of them? I mean, particularly yeah. boys. And my daughter, particularly, whose, whose life was, uh, the four of us, my daughter's life, because she's a student, uh, has been more affected than any. I mean, she's essentially had a middle chunk of her university experience blown blown away and but she hasn't complained at all and uh she just got on with it and that has uh that's sort of been good for the good for all of us i think uh i mean as as i say in my column and as you just said matt i'm conscious that i'm writing from you know a spacious house with a garden and a and a nice job so obviously that's that's a caveat you know <laughs> But it's fine, but, to, you know. Uh, but equally, it's also fine to say, you know, there have been th- some things that we can't. Not everyone has spent the entirety of the last twelve months uh, being completely miserable. In fact, Lin- Lindsay's just texted and said, "I felt guilty for saying I've loved lockdown when so hmm. many have struggled." Uh, like Robert, I'm starting to feel nostalgic. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's the problem. Is that actually that everyone <laughs> thinks it's just the super rich that have had a good time because they've gone off to the Maldives or they've managed to get out of it. But when you look at the research, it's across the board. It's not actually a particular geographical area or, or a class or mm. a type of person at all. Or I mean, it's more men than women have enjoyed it. I have to say. Yeah, but and as you think, and as you say, Alice, I think the big one is commuting, isn't it? Commuting, yeah. and having to go to an office. I mean, that is going to be the big, yeah. lasting change and the big improvement. I think. And furlough has been fantastic. I mean, I think the idea that you can be paid to stay at home has actually been amazing for the people who've actually done it for quite a long I was time. At, I mean, it hasn't. I was actually up in Barnard Castle yesterday doing a piece for our party <laughs> section. Uh, and they, their interest, for obvious reasons, we chose we chose that place. Uh, but they're, the estate agents there are reporting a huge boom in people uh, from from the south but also from local cities uh who are just basically said well i don't have to be in an office anymore i'll go and live in the country uh and i think that will be a huge change yeah and that whole yeah. and we, were, we were talking about that earlier in the week with um uh libby purvis but that whole idea that now if you can do maybe two or three days at home well you, maybe mm-hmm. you don't mind that slightly longer commute if it's only a couple of days a week and actually it might be quite yeah. good for for more rural areas who've 
you know, if, if people are basically basing themselves in the countryside and then, you know, treating mm. uh, town and city centres yeah. uh, as, as yeah. you know, somewhere you pop to rather than the other way around it, where, um, you it, know, second homes have been locked it, up for months. It will, yeah. it, will be, it will be if they're allowed to build the houses. That's going to be the problem. Yeah. And also it is 14% of people want to go back to the office full time. I mean, that is tiny. Yeah. Most people yeah. really have decided that they're not going to do it. I don't think they're going to let the companies do it either. So apart from Goldman Sachs, and even they've had to cut yeah. down so they're not working on Saturdays now. I know, that um, made me laugh. It is beginning to change, isn't it? I mean, yeah. no one's going to accept it anymore. Although really. as someone who started commuting back in this week, it's now day three. I'll be honest, I've had enough of the train now. It was much nicer when, <laughs> I, just, when I just made a cup of tea in the kitchen and walked upstairs to do the show. But, yeah, yeah. But, um, in your uh, pyjamas. Um, yeah, no, no. I'd like to stress. I did always get dressed. Um, well, I mean, no, we have that picture of you in your pajamas that was in the. Gone yeah, they keep using it. Back. I they once. I know. Well, we've all done it. We've all done it. We've all agreed to have your photo taken for the Times magazine, and then it's net. It's used. And what's the daftest thing you've ever done for the magazine, Robert? Oh, I'm uh, trying to get a six pack. And, uh... <laughs> Mine was going to an F and M party. I mean, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Extraordinary that I, I had to do that when I was in my mid twenties. Yeah, Robert remembers. It was like, and it was considered normal. That was part of the deal when you were. A yeah, the most reporter. junior, the most yeah, a sort of junior person. Well, yeah, it was just yeah, it's a, it's a rite of passage <laughs> being made to look ridiculous by the Times Al- magazine. Alice and I were sent off to go and try and flirt with people in Paris when we were we were the sort of young kids, uh, feature reporters yeah. in the nineties, and we had to just go and sort of chat up French people for summer bizarre reason somebody <laughs> it was great actually who was more successful is, enjoy it oh i think we can't remember actually i don't know i think robert may have been i have to say robert may have been what, more french i think he was more successful at the chat up <laughs> I, I pulled a gay guy actually <laughs> he, he was quite keen I'm going to have to try and dig this out. I'm going to have to try. If we could steer you back slightly towards the news agenda, uh, yes. let's talk about. Let's to really su- suck all the fun out of the conversation. Let's talk about Pity Patel. Um, uh, mm. She's announced uh, another new crackdown on illegal immigration to the UK. Um, but I was really struck. I dug out some uh, the, the polling on this. It is incredible what's happened to public opinion on a sort of yeah. concern about uh, mm. uh, immigration and so on. So pre-2016, I don't know what happened in 2016, but pre-2016, about 50% of people, sometimes going up to 60%, said that immigration asylum was one of the top three issues facing the UK. That's now half, more than halved to sort of around 20%. Uh, even though, actually, net migration uh, pre-pandemic was almost back up to where it was pre-EU mm-hmm. referendum. But it's just a sort of sense... Clearly, there have been other things going on, tackling, you know, dealing with Brexit was one, tackling the coronavirus is another. But it sort of... I don't know, it felt a little, I don't know there was something about... It felt a little bit retro, uh, Pretty Patel still banging this drum, when, when public concern um, suggested it, it's not... Yeah, the levels of public concern suggest it's not what it was, Alice. I think she's definitely gone backwards. I mean, it's extraordinary that we're not interested in this area anymore. Also, I think people are slightly more empathetic because we've now gone through this huge seismic shift with COVID. But I have to say, I know that if, you know, if we'd had COVID so badly here and the whole country had been in turmoil, the idea that my four teenagers might have decided that they were going to try and get themselves a better life somewhere would would have been understandable to me and to quite, I think, a lot of other people. So I think we maybe are more empathetic now to the idea that people will flee countries when things go wrong. And also that really that actually, you know, we need to look at it in different ways, that we've got to work out what's going on. We don't want people dying in the channel. But on the other hand, we don't want them you know, trying to get here and then being so penalised and treated so appallingly um, that we feel guilty and upset about it and realise that actually... 
you know, that, that it's not what a civilised country should be doing. No, it, it does look to me like it's kicking the problem down the road because, it, I mean, it look, on the face of it, it looks more reasonable than certain some of the things that she's suggested in the past, like put, putting people on oil rigs or offshore islands or giant wave machines or something. <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it's going to create a problem because what happens is somebody gets here illegally, they the asylum request is then refused what do we but they have no money and they're kept in a detention center indefinitely i mean what we're not gonna we're not gonna we're not gonna take them back and shove them on a beach in france so i can't see how it's uh gonna solve anything really and i suppose it's one of those things that uh in the absence of of anything which actually might work but just being seen to keep saying something to stop if for no other reason to stop nigel farage going and standing on a beach and pointing yes Yes, because this is a localised problem, particularly in Kent. It is a, uh, it's a massive problem, uh, although I mean, nationally, the interest may have waned, but certainly it hasn't uh, regionally. Yeah. And actually, our population is going down again now, and that's what's happened mm. with COVID, is that people have left the country. So, you know, I mean, it sounds extraordinary, but we, we've part of the reason I think people are less worried about immigration is we are, have got fewer people now in the country, and we're going to get to a stage when we actually need some of these people. And you, know, you look at care homes, well, and you look at you, know, you look at all the areas where we haven't got enough staff at the moment, and you're going to start saying that yeah, we do actually need some immigration again. Well, I've always thought that if somebody's got the wherewithal to get themselves, you know, from Syria to the coast of France and then across the Channel, they sound like the sort of people we should be welcoming. Yeah, they've yeah, probably got exactly. a bit of a, a bit. Of, that's only what you call a, a bit of get up and go. Yeah. Inter- it will be interesting though. If at what point do we start seeing a, a sort of national conversation about why we need more people in the UK? You know that, but it's we, you know we've massively shifted already on you know the scale of state intervention on uh, welfare. The the you know the public attitudes have massively shifted from you know welfare is too high to welfare is too low, and may, maybe that that'll be the next mm-hmm. one. I mean, the only other thing in terms of because I, I tweeted the, the graph of the number of people who said that uh, well uh, immigration was a concern this morning and James Johnson um, the pollster who does our focus groups um, he responded with he's been doing some some trackers particularly in red wall areas and asked voters why they might hesitate about voting for the Labour Party he did one of those sort of word cloud things the two biggest things were left and economy and then next were immigration um, mm. And that so that does still stick out. And so in, in particular, you know, you've done a lot. You said um, uh, you've been up to Barnard Castle. We've done quite a lot of reporting in the Red Wall areas. And this is uh-huh. one of those those issues which does still resonate, Robert. Yes, because people think that because the infrastructure isn't necessarily there. Uh, I think if if people thought that they were going to get the schools and the hospitals and the housing uh, to accommodate uh, new arrivals, I think they'd be have a very different attitude. But if they know that their local services are already hard pressed, which they are after ten years of austerity, then they're going to they're going to pull up the drawbridge. It's, it's completely understandable. It's a question of funding. And I suppose the other thing is that uh, if you've been constantly told that the reason for that is uh, because there's too many people coming over here, uh, rather Ooh. than because of decisions made to cut public services, then that's you know that's where you're going to point the, the the finger of blame. Indeed, I mean that's the, that's been the. That's been the case throughout the ages, hasn't it? People in a bad situation have always looked to blame somebody in a slightly worse situation. Oh, what a depressing state of affairs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was much nicer when we were talking about you two going to sex parties. Yeah, yeah exactly. in Paris, I think. <laughs> I just wanted to point out that when I went to the S&M parties, I wasn't involved in the S&M parties. I had to report no. on them. Right, you were merely there as an observer. Exactly. Did you make your excuses and leave, Alice? Well, I have to say, I did put what I was wearing onto expenses because I never wanted to wear it again. 
Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton. You can also read them both in The Times every week. You just need to get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's PMQ's Unpacked. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast, and now it's time for this... PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. Yes, it's that time of the week where we pause the action live from the House of Commons to try and explain what is going on in the key exchanges between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. And Tim Shipman, as ever, political editor of the Sunday Times, is here to um, cast a critical eye over what they're saying and maybe try to explain what the pair of them are getting at. What do we think might come up this week, Tim? Well, it's obviously the last PMQs before the recess, so it's a great opportunity to sort of set the tone for your team. Um, So I imagine we'll get quite a lot of political action today. Um, Boris Johnson's in a bit of hot water because he talked about we've done well on uh, uh, the vaccine uh, because greed is good and it's all about capitalism and making lots of money. I would imagine Keir Starmer might bring that up. It's also, of course, the the, the anniversary of the first lockdown and I would think there'll be some big picture kind of uh, ruminations about what we got right and what we got wrong. And Keir Starmer, of course, can deploy the words of Dominic Cummings that the whole thing was things that went catastrophically wrong, uh, the former number 10 uh, aide was talking about uh, last week. Um, probably want to put um, uh, Boris Johnson on the spot. And last night, um, Johnson did hint that, you know, there were things he'd got wrong and that things that um, he wished he'd known at the time. So it could be that that's a string that uh, that Starmer wants to pull on. Uh, beyond that, of course, looking forward, it's travel bans and summer holidays and uh, what's really going on there. So, you know, Starmer's got a chance to look forward and back today, I would think. Um, do you think that he will want to get into this argument about greed? Because uh, there's a, I suppose it's one of these things where a very clever question, Boris Johnson could respond with just, 
we vaccinated more people than the rest of Europe put together, or whatever it is the latest figures show. It seems to me it's the kind of thing where you might have a good joke at some point in your six questions that allude to it, um, without necessarily getting into a row about vaccines, given that that's a strong point of the government. Uh, and Boris Johnson has a pretty easy comeback where he can taunt Keir Starmer about whether or not he supports capitalism or not, and the pharma companies, because Labour, uh, under their previous leader, had a, a record of being quite rude about uh, pharmaceutical companies who've uh, obviously helped sort out this mess. It's interesting. So he's just taking a backbench uh, question from Conservative MP. He's asking a really tough question, saying, will you join me in celebrating everyone involved in the rollout of the vaccine? Uh, yeah, that's, um, you know, uh, what do you do with that? <laughs> uh, it may be so simple that he forgets to tonk it for six, but it's like one of those balls when you're playing cricket that's so slow that you've played three shots before it even arrives. But um, I dare say Boris Johnson can cope with that, though the hair... It's quite something. To hair, yes, he is very much looking in need of uh, of a haircut. I think it's fair to say. So that, he's that... not alone in that. But um, uh, even you in this, get, room... you want to get yourself some clippers on Amazon. Yeah, that's what I'll be doing. Um, well, but tell you what, I'll bring the clippers in. We'll do it next week. We Excellent. could do it. We could do it during PMQs. Then that'll um, that'll work out uh, just fine. Um, and in terms of who, as we head, as you said, we're heading into the recess. Who do you think is on the you know on the up, and who is in trouble? I'm not sure either of them is in particular mortal trouble, but Boris Johnson has had a better few months than Keir Starmer um, because the vaccine has bailed him out and, and Europe have behaved slightly strangely over this whole vaccine thing. And it's it's made uh, Brexit look uh, like a better idea than a lot of people thought as well. OK, let's go to the House of Commons. This is Keir Starmer. Position, right Honourable Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I start with joining the Prime Minister in his remarks about yesterday's day of reflection for the 126,000 people who lost their lives to COVID. That's a shocking number, and behind every one of those numbers is a grieving family. As soon as restrictions lift, there must be a full public inquiry, because that is the only way we can get to the bottom of the many mistakes that were made during the pandemic and find justice for those who've suffered so much. Mr Speaker, why did the Prime Minister promise at the last election that he would, and I quote, not be cutting our armed services in any form? Oh, uh, Mr Speaker, uh, that was because what we were going to do was actually increase spending on our armed services by the biggest amount since the, uh, since the Cold War, £24 billion, uh, modernising our armed forces, keeping our, with no redundancies, Mr Speaker, keeping our, our, our army at 100,000 if you include the reserves. And I must say, I take it a, a slightly amiss a from the uh, right honourable gentleman when he stood on a, 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 man, a manifesto to elect a man who wanted to pull this country out of NATO. Mr. Speaker. Yes, Starmer. OK, let's jump in there. There's quite a lot to unpack there. I mean, just on the, on the, the issue of the full public inquiry, making the case that it should start as soon as restrictions lift. Um, I suspect Keir Starmer might be disappointed in the idea that we're going to be into that by, uh, by uh, June. But choosing, of all the things, as ever, of all the things we suggested he might go on, he went for something different. And uh, the defence cuts uh, that have been announced, more than 100 aircraft will be axed, dozens of tanks scrapped, and thousands of army jobs lost as more money is uh, directed towards drones and robots as part of the uh, the shake that was announced this week. Um, this is all points towards sort of patriotic Keir Starmer. Exactly. It's an opportunity for him to say, uh, look, I'm not Jeremy Corbyn. Um, uh, unfortunately, he's got Boris Johnson on the other side of the desk saying, um, do you remember you were with this Jeremy Corbyn fellow? <laughs> um, 
And, you know, there's Johnson did boost spending by 16 billion quid. Um, and a lot of these cuts are of, you know, what they call legacy projects, um, old tanks on the German plane, um, which I'm sure if uh, Starmer persists with this line of questioning, we'll hear uh, Boris Johnson talk about lots of exciting things like AI and cyber and all the high tech stuff that we're going to do instead. Um, but as you say, uh, questions are not always there to get answers. They're sometimes there to state your position. And Starmer, I think, uh, has, has obviously chosen to show that he's into the armed forces um but also i suppose it's it's uh it's it's fine if that's what the prime minister's chosen to do and he wants to redirect money towards um new whiz bang things but then don't say we will not cut the armed forces if that is essentially what that means in practice well i suspect what we're about to see is a long-standing tradition of people pinning boris attempting to pin boris johnson down for things that he has said that have turned out to be uh, less than accurate and boris johnson wriggling like an (laughs) eel and probably just about getting away with it yes i think uh uh, yeah nailing custard to the wall is probably what we're going to see now let's go back to keir starmer mr speaker he's fighting the last war but um is is, is he is 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 he is he, is, he trying, is he trying to pretend, is he trying to pretend, hidden in that answer, that the army stands at over 100,000, the number the Prime Minister quoted there, uh, because it's absolutely clear from the Secretary of State for Defence's statement that I think he made here on Monday, he was absolutely clear. His words, I have therefore taken the decision to reduce the size of the army to 72,500 by 2025. Only this Prime Minister could suggest that a reduction from 82,000 to 72,000 is somehow not a cut. Uh, but the Prime Minister didn't answer my question, which was why did he make that promise? He said before the last election, Prime Minister, all very well looking up, we will not be cutting our armed services in any form. What did he do this week? He cut the British Army by 10,000, he cut the number of tanks, he cut the number of planes for RAF, and he cut the number of ships for the Royal Navy. I say he, the Prime Minister didn't have the courage actually to come to the House himself to say what he was doing. So let me ask the Prime Minister a simple question. Going back to that promise before the election, did he ever intend to keep his promise to our armed forces? Prime Minister. Uh, Let's just jump in there, because in a way there's there's sort of two uh, angles to what Keir Starmer's up to here. One, I love the armed forces, love Britain, patriotic, wrap myself in the flag. Also, you can't trust a word that Boris Johnson says, which is another sort of, can be, as you're alluding, a rich seam for, for the Labour Party. Uh, yes, I mean, when he says, why did you make that pledge? The honest answer that, to that is, um, because I'm the Prime Minister and I like to say what I want to happen and what I believe is the case at the moment that I say it. And if it turns out not to be, I'll uh, say some other stuff um, in future. Uh, I doubt that's the answer the Prime Minister will provide us with, but uh, that would be the honest one. Um, you know, he's got a track record of this. He He's an optimist. He likes to think things will turn out for the best, um, uh, despite the evidence that they frequently don't. And uh, dare I suggest it, perhaps the Prime Minister hadn't fully thought through the future shape and uh, capabilities of the armed forces when he made At that At the promise. exact moment he was coming out with those words. Well, no, let's, let's see how he responds. Mr Speaker, not only, not only did we uh, keep our promise the, of the, in the manifesto last night, we actually increased spending uh, by 14% more than that manifesto, uh, manifesto commitment. And I, again, Mr Speaker, I think it is frankly satirical 
uh, to be lectured about the size of the, uh, of the army, when the Shadow Foreign Secretary herself only recently wrote that the entire British army should be turned into a kind of peace corps, um, Mr Speaker, and, uh, and when, as I say, the, uh, the Leader of the, uh, of the Opposition stood on a manifesto uh, to elect a, elect a, uh, wanted to elect a leader who himself wanted uh, to disband the armed services. This is a massive investment in our defences uh, and in our future. And it's wonderful to hear the, the new spirit of, uh, of jingo that seems to have enveloped uh, some of the Labour benches. Uh, you, they, they, they don't like it up, Mr Speaker. I, th I think he's got into a bit of a... I think he was, rather than the Shadow Defence, I think he was talking about the Shadow Foreign Secretary, Lisa Nandy, I think had sort of endorsed a report that was... Uh, uh, praising calls for the British Army to be uh, disbanded in some way. No, I think. Well, I think Jeremy Corbyn has previously had previously uh, talked about disbanding the army as well. So I think that's, uh, that's all, another aspect of uh, fighting fighting the, the last. But war. that was a rich old seam, and and as it ha as it was going on, um, Keir Starmer's people were WhatsApping out um, uh, a picture of a page lead in the Sun newspaper headlined "No Troop Cuts," in which Boris Johnson made this pledge, and the byline on it is none other than Times Radio's own uh, Mr. Tom Newton Dunn. Uh, back when he was working for the Sun, um, so that's more evidence of, of Labour being switched on and being able to sort of uh, chuck out the facts at a rate of knots uh, as these uh, uh, exchanges are going on. We um, and it, it, it's not just you know because Boris Johnson tried to draw the distinction that actually we were still increasing the funding. He said uh, the Prime Minister told the Sun we will not be cutting our armed forces in any form. We will maintaining the size of our armed forces because we are increasing funding for them. I believe in our services. There we are. Well, let's see. Uh, it, maybe maybe uh, Keir Starmer's going to start waving the sun around now. Let's have a look. Uh, let's go back to the comments. Let's try this for Upham, because um, <laughs> the Prime Minister might want to avoid the promises he made, but I found an interview he gave during the general election campaign under the headline. Here's the headline. No troop cuts. Tories will maintain size of armed forces. It then goes on to quote the Prime Minister. Boris Johnson has promised that he will not make any new cuts to the armed forces. He also promised, might want to listen to this Prime Minister, he also promised to maintain numbers at their current level, including the Army's 82,000. Now, I know the Prime Minister's got form for making up quotes, but, but can he tell us, does he think the newspapers have somehow misquoted him, or does he now remember making that promise? Prime Minister. Let's see if he remembers. Yes, Mr Speaker, because there will, be, there will be no redundancies in our armed forces. And I said to him, if you include, if you include reserves, we're, we're even keeping the army at 100,000. But on top of that, Mr Speaker, we're doing what is necessary to modernise our armed forces, taking them into the 21st century, building more frigates, Mr Speaker, investing in cyber warfare, Mr. doing all the difficult things that Labour shirked during their time in office, including, Mr Speaker, modernising and upgrading our nuclear deterrent, which again, which again, half the shadow front bench would like to remove, leaving Britain defenceless internationally. Well, there we are. That was um, as as predicted. He was literally waving around a printout of the Sun uh, story that you just uh, mentioned, Tim. 
this, I mean, so Keir Stubbers sort of getting the upper hand on this. He sounds like he's quite enjoying himself. I would say this is the best exchange we've had for a very long time because, for the reasons you've said, it's Starmer doing himself some good in his positioning um, and he's causing Boris Johnson to some discomfort. Actually, the Prime Minister knows what he's talking about on this and his answers are pretty decent as well. We're actually having a substantive debate about a serious issue and it goes to show what can be had when you step away from all the slight awkwardness of COVID um, and, you know, a difficult situation for both of them um, in how they attack and defend. And this is this is a proper old-fashioned parliamentary exchange and I'm rather enjoying it. Well, let's go back to it then. Uh, more popcorn, please. Mr Speaker, I have every respect for our reservists, but the, the Prime Minister is just playing with the numbers. He knows very well that the numbers have been cut. The trouble is you just can't trust the Conservatives to protect our armed forces. Let's, well, let, let's look. Mr Speaker, let's look at their last manifestos. These are the manifestos that those opposites stood on. The, 20, the 2015 manifesto... Oh, oh, order. I'm struggling to hear the Leader of the Opposition. And I will hear the Leader of the That's Opposition. That's quite something so when there's basically still nobody in the House of Commons. Yeah. <laughs> goes to show it's got people wound up. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The 2015 manifesto, we will maintain the size of the regular armed services. The 2017 manifesto, we will maintain the overall size of the armed forces. 2019, the Prime Minister, we will not be cutting our, um, our armed services in any form. But the truth is, since 2010, our armed forces have been cut by 45,000. And our army will now be cut to its lowest level in 300 years. Let me remind the Prime Minister and members opposite why this matters. Lord Richards, former Chief of Defence Staff, has warned that with an armed force of this size now, we almost certainly wouldn't be able to retake the Falklands or stop genocide. He says it's rubbish. That's Lord Richards, Prime Minister. After 10 years of Conservative government, is the Prime Minister not ashamed of that? Just to jump in there, one thing, and I think it's always a risk when Keir Starmer starts talking about since 2010 and try to hold Boris Johnson accountable for what Boris, particularly what David Cameron did, but also Theresa May. If you want to play that game, I bet you a pound he's going to mention Jeremy Corbyn again. Yeah, yeah, that seems very likely indeed. But this is a proper bit of work by the Shadow Defence team. John Healy deserves a lot of credit for lining up all this stuff. Um, Starmer's people have, have got the right questions and they're sticking with it. I thought at the start of this they might just do a bit of this because it's important, but actually... Um, he's really going for it, um, and he's building, you know, each question on on the last. Um, uh, this is good. Well, let's go back. Boris Johnson in the comments. Uh, well, uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, this Conservative government is massively proud of the investment that we've made uh, in our armed forces, which, as I say, is the biggest uplift since the the Cold War. And he should look at what the NATO Secretary General had to say about our investment, which is absolutely vital for the future success of the Alliance and indeed uh, for the security of many other countries around the world. Uh, a £24 billion investment, uh, investment in the future combat air system and use army uh, special operations ranger regiment, uh, £1.3 billion to upgrade 
uh, the Challenger uh, main battle tanks, uh, massive investment in the Typhoon squadrons, uh, and so on. Uh, we're investing in the future, Mr Speaker, and yes, of course, we've had to take some tough decisions, but that's because we believe in our defences and we believe that they should be more than merely symbolic. And it's the Labour Party, Mr Speaker, who are consistently, historically, um, hilarious to be lectured about the Falklands, uh, Mr Speaker, con con consistently, uh, consistently weak on protecting this country. And, and, you, and you heard it. Uh, you, it was most, most visible uh, last week, Mr Speaker, during the debate on the integrated review, when it was plain that the shadow front bench couldn't even agree to maintain Britain's nuclear, nuclear deterrent. Absolutely true, Mr Speaker. Well, um, Tim, you were just speculating about whether or not they were going to broaden it out beyond just the armed forces. Well, I think we can now hear Keir Starmer doing exactly that. Mr Speaker, what's weaker than making a promise to our armed forces just before the election, then breaking it and not being prepared to admit it, not having the courage to admit it? And there's a pattern here, Mr Speaker. He promised the NHS that they would have, quote, whatever they need. Now nurses are getting a pay cut. He promised a tax guarantee. Now he's putting taxes up for families. He promised he wouldn't cut the armed forces. Now he's done just that. So if the Prime Minister is so proud of what he's doing, so determined to push ahead, why does he at least have the courage to put this cut in the armed forces to a vote in this House? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I'm proud of what we're doing to increase spending on the armed forces by the biggest amount since the Cold War. The only reason we can do that, Mr Speaker, is because under this Conservative government we've been running a sound economy. And it's also because we believe in defence. We've been getting on with the job. He talks about nurses and investment in the NHS. I'm proud of the massive investment uh, that we've made uh, in the NHS. And actually we have 60,000 more nurses now in training. Uh, and we've increased their starting salary by 12.8%. Uh, We're getting on with the job, Mr Speaker, of recruiting more police, 20,000 more police. I think we've done 7,000 already. While they're out on the streets, Mr Speaker, at demonstrations shouting, kill the bill, Mr Speaker. That's the difference. That's the difference between his party and my party. We're pro-vax, Mr Speaker. We're low-tax. And when it comes to defence, we've got your backs, Mr Speaker. Can I just say, I, I genuinely mean this. I do not believe any member of Parliament would support that kill the bill. I've got to be very careful about what say. I say we are all united in this house in the support and the protection that the police do offer us, and nobody will shy away from that. Mr. Starmer. Well, before we go to Keir, blimey, there's a lot to unpack in all of that. Uh, Keir Starmer tried to t tie it all up in a in a uh, bow of uh, a succession, you know, trying to nail this idea that Boris Johnson says one thing before an election uh, and then does a different thing um, afterwards. Then also push, and the reason that Keir Starmer wants to push this uh, defence cut to a vote is because, of course, Tory MP, if there's one thing Tory MPs like doing, it's voting for uh, more money for the armed forces. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think what we've seen today is um, this is the first time in months that Starmer has combined three things. He's combined uh, some positioning for himself. I'm pro-military, pro-armed forces. Some good process, some research, proper digging, dig out the quotes you need, weaponise them, use them proper, properly, and then a decent message, which is you can't trust Boris Johnson on any of this stuff, you can't trust him on the public services, says one thing, does another. And he's wrapped it all up. Um, and then what you saw in return was a classic bit of Boris Johnson improvise, you know, verbal improvisation, which actually was pretty effective as well. Um, 
Apart, is... apart from getting ticked off on this, yeah, we're pro tax. No, we're pro vax, low tax. We've got your backs. Yeah, I mean it's a bit naff, but uh, <laughs> but given given what the fire he was under, that's a pretty it's, decent it's, effort. It's not um, bad at all. And then uh, yeah, we should point out that it was Boris Johnson suggesting that uh, Labour MPs in some way supported the the riot in uh, Bristol on um, uh, Sunday night, and the Speaker Lindsay Hoyle leaping to their. And Lindsay Hoyle actually, I mean, you know, when he first took over from John Burko, he he went out of his way to try and do things differently and to not be ticking everybody off all the time and listening to the sound of his voice rather than the MPs. But in the last few weeks, he's quietly getting pretty punchy about um, yeah, things yeah. Boris Johnson's saying. And actually. if you speak to people who never turned, they're quite annoyed by it. It's yeah. like, it does all feel quite Well, having familiar. gone out of their way to elect Lindsay Hall because they thought he wouldn't <laughs> be John Burko, it, uh, it's uh, a matter of some amusement to some of us that this is happening. And Keir Starmer's a big boy. He could probably defend himself. Let's see if he has a go anyway. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The question, Prime Minister, is why not put it... I don't have the courage to put it to a vote. That question, of course, was avoided, Prime Minister, uh, Mr Speaker, like all of the questions. Yeah. And we all know why he won't put it to a vote. Let me quote his Conservative MP, Chair of the Defence Select Committee, because he recognises, and he has experience and respect across the House, he recognises that this review means dramatic cuts to our troop numbers, tanks, armoured fighting vehicles and more than 100 RAF aircraft, and he goes on to say, your MP, Prime Minister, cuts that, if tested by a parliamentary vote, I do not believe would pass. Not me, his own MPs. Mr Speaker, can I say this? Because I want to turn to another issue that affects thousands of jobs and many communities across the country. 5,000 jobs are at risk at Liberty Steel, with many more in the supply chain. The UK steel industry is under huge pressure and the government's failure to prioritise British steel in infrastructure projects is costing millions of pounds in investment. So will the Prime Minister now commit to working with us and the trade unions to change this absurd situation, to put British steel first and do whatever is necessary to protect those jobs? But it's, before we hear Boris Johnson, it's a slight... It's, it, it's, I, it's I, I find that very odd, I'll be honest. Duff, you know, you, he's but, having an absolute stormer. Um, he's built it up across five questions, and then he sort of tacks that on the end, um, which is obviously an important issue. And if he were doing one of those smorgasbord PMQs where he raises three or four things and jabs away, it would be a decent question to ask. I mean, I find it curious that he didn't do that at the top and then work his way to a frenzied conclusion and instead... This feels a little bit like after the Lord Mayor's show. Uh, and, yeah, he's not going to get the crescendo soundbite for the telly that he, he, he might have done. I mean, it is worth pointing out that the, the reason that this firm Liberty still is in trouble is because Greens Hill Capital, uh, which is the group that lends money to businesses so they can pay their suppliers, filed for administration last week. And, of course, you've heard of Greens Hill in the, in the news recently. Why is that, Tim? Uh, well, it's uh, Mr David Cameron has been uh, doing some work on their behalf um, and picking up the phone to his old friends um, who've been largely telling him to get lost. Yeah, I was going to say, it hasn't been terribly successful in that sense. Yeah, but David Cameron, uh, uh, has sort of got a retainer from Greenshill, has been texting Rishi Sunak asking for support for the company. Uh, that wasn't forthcoming and the company, um, yeah, is in uh, big financial trouble. And nothing Boris Johnson's going to like more than to finish off with uh, a question where he's going to have to defend David Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see if he does. Or throw him to the rules. Here we go. Mr. Speaker, I'll just remind, I'm of course happy to cooperate in any way, but uh, the steel output halved under. 
under the, uh, under the Labour government. Uh, I share very much the anxiety of, of families uh, who's, uh, with, of steel workers who work in, in Liberty Steel and that's why the, uh, the, my Honourable Friend, the Business Secretary, has had, I think, three meetings just in the last few days uh, with Liberty Steel to take the, uh, to take the question forward, see what we can, uh, we can do. We are actively engaged. Uh, we're investing uh, huge sums in modernising uh, British Steel, making, uh, British steel uh, plants and making them uh, more environmentally friendly. But we have a massive opportunity, Mr Speaker. Because this government is engaged on a, a £640 billion infrastructure campaign. Uh, HS2, the great dogger bank, uh, wind farms, uh, Hinkley, uh, all the things that we're now building, uh, the beaching railway reversals, all the things that we're doing across the country, they will call for millions and millions of tonnes of British steel. And now, Mr Speaker, thanks to leaving the European Union, we have an opportunity to direct that procurement of British firms in the way that we would want to do. Whereas I know that the right honourable gentleman would like nothing more than to take this country back into the European Union and remove that opportunity for British steel and British steel workers. Well, well, that's the end of the, the main exchange between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson. A very strange ending to that, having felt like we were building up, a, like you said, one of the best performances from Keir Starmer, probably since he became I would say that's his best performance leader. since he became leader. And he yeah. was, uh, he's been, you know, was it the end of next week, isn't it? He marks a year in the job. That's right. Um, and he's somehow managing to not necessarily uh, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, but, but wander away from the jaws altogether. Yeah, no, he'd, he'd sort of done enough, but it's a bit like going, you know, 3-1 up and um, with 10 minutes of extra time left and uh, deciding to just sort of hang about uh, by the corner flag, um, uh, which I thought was quite curious. And Boris Johnson there, you know, finding his comfort zone at the end, bringing it back to Brexit, um, which, uh, you know, is an interesting psychological thing in itself. But, you know, the, you know, I think that was a good exchange. It was good for, for, for Starmer. I think Tory MPs would have been encouraged that Johnson didn't just collapse. He sort of held his own uh, in terms of... Uh, at least having something coherent to come back with each time. Um, but the noise was what struck me. That You've got the, people, the speaker saying you can't hear what's going on, and that's the first time, you know, that chamber has been an echoing Mary Celeste of, uh, without any life or, or, you know, enthusiasm for some time. You know, Starmer was able to tell jokes today and get, get a response to them, you know. That's, that's pretty encouraging for the return of some kind of politics as usual. Um, uh, as we, you know, begin to emerge from this lockdown, I think, uh, you know, those people, people who like politics and the cut and thrust, uh, today has been a good day. But it's, it's it, I mean, we should point out there aren't more MPs than normal in the House of Commons. This is something I was just counting now. What, there's three or four on the government front bench, then there's an empty row behind, and then three, then an empty row behind, and then three. And it's the same uh, sort of mirrored right across the chamber. But, yeah, it just seemed like there was a bit of life in there. And if there's been a criticism of Keir Starmer, it's one we've talked a lot about on the on the show before, it's, it's the, the, or at least the question that I've kept posing is, is he keeping his powder dry or does he have no powder? And today we at least got a sign of what he could do. Like you said, if you park coronavirus, focus on the, a completely distinct political issue, really going on armed forces, armed forces cuts. It does show that he can cause trouble. Yeah, and there's a real art to this. I mean, there's quite a good book on uh, PMQs which talks you through how the people behind the scenes go about it. It can seem to the the average punter in the street like it's just some bloke with six questions. But, you know, if you do it well, you you tie the Prime Minister in knots and build an argument as you go through that builds to a crescendo. And for the first five questions today, he did that. It was it was quite artful. Um, it's not always straightforward to, to do it well. Um and they've shown that they can do that now. And I think a lot of Labour MPs will go away pretty heartened by that.
Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.